How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 90 of X-Lapsed. I can hardly believe it. We are within 10 episodes of hitting 100. Never thought we'd get here, but uh, here we are. Now, today, we're covering a book that, if the uh, little tab on the cover is anything to go by, it looks like we're officially on the path to X of Tens. That's another thing I never thought we'd get to, but hey, we're almost there. Or we're getting there. We're getting there soon enough. Now, today we're going to be talking about Marauders number 11. This had an October 2020 cover date. The story is called To Live and Die on Krakoa. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors Edgar Delgado, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Robinson White Sabolski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale August 12th of 2020. Now we open. On a letter written from Nightcrawler to call me Kate. You see, we know Kate's dead. Nightcrawler knows she's dead too, but he's not given up hope that the Five will be able to bring her back. And so he's basically journaling for her. You know, he's keeping her up to date on all the goings-on in, on Krakoa, so when she comes back, she can read these, she'll be right back up to speed. Now he signs off before bamfing over to the beach, where we see Kitty herself laid out in a little boat, in her Red Queen attire with a pair of coins covering her eyes. And uh, I guess that's something out of a Greek legend, apparently. Uh, the coins are a payment to Charon, or Charon, uh, the ferryman of Hades, which uh, I didn't know anything about until I did a little bit of reading as I was putting together these notes, and that's pretty interesting stuff. From here, we jump immediately into our roll call. We've got Emma Frost, Storm, Lockheed, Nightcrawler, Professor X, Healer, Elixir, Proteus, Hope, Tempest, and Egg. Then, of course, our double-page spread of creds. And then we're right back at our burial at sea for Captain Call Me Kate. Now, the little boat is surrounded by a bunch of notable and not-so-notable mutants. Uh, Colossus is conspicuous by his absence. And I'm looking around at this group, and uh, I think I see Agent X. I mean, who the hell would have ever invited Agent X? And I think that's the most I've ever thought about Agent X in about 20 years. That's... Really, such a weird inclusion. Anyway, now the ceremony begins. Um, now, we learn that there will never be a cemetery on Krakoa, and so burial at sea is the route they're taking. They're also holding on to the hope that this is only a temporary hiatus from life for Kitty. Now, the boat is filled with roses and then tipped into the Pacific. Magic conjures up a spark and passes it over to Pyro, who ignites the little boat, and it burns as it drifts into the ocean. We follow Emma back to the White Palace where she, well, she has a breakdown. Um, she starts crying uncontrollably, but uh, her crying is interrupted by the shattering of a nearby window. 
Now, she's annoyed. She doesn't know who's bothering her at such a time. So she goes to check on it, and she discovers that it was Lockheed. Lockheed's returned. She decides to read the little dragon's mind, and, uh, well, now she knows everything. She knows exactly what happened to Kitty that night. Uh, Emma then diamonds up and punches a wall, vowing that Sebastian Shaw will pay for what he'd done. From here, we go to an info page, and it's a... It's a short bit detailing Professor X's remarks regarding Kitty's passing, um, like a eulogy of sorts. It even references the time that she called him a jerk, which, you know, not bad. Back to Emma, she's still mad as a hornet, but she decides that she ought to be a little bit cooler about this. She doesn't want to act purely on emotion, but she will, she will make sure to take care of Sebastian. He will still pay for everything he did that night. From here, Emma takes Lockheed to the healing garden so the Morlock healer could take a look at him, and she learns that the tiny dragon was loved and cared for while he was away, which, you know, we have seen bits and pieces of that during the last handful of issues. You know, he was fished out of the Pacific, and he was kind of helped back to health by uh, that young girl. Now, Emma tells the Morlock healer to, you know, keep this between us. Don't tell anybody that Lockheed's returned. She then calls out to Professor X to request that he and the Five give Kitty's resurrection one more try. Charles remarks that, hey... And Nightcrawler already asked him to do that exact same thing, and he already agreed, so we're good to go for another try. However, if it doesn't work this time, they're going to have to move on to other Resurrectees. Now, that isn't to say they're going to stop trying to bring Kitty back, but she's not going to be their one and only focus from that point on. Now, we shift scenes to something completely different. We're on a subway car, and it's a, it's a crowded subway car, which becomes a little more so when Storm enters. Now, over the course of a couple of panels, all of the other commuters bring one filter out due to the suggestion of the Stepford Cuckoos. Now, the one remaining commuter is a woman in a wheelchair who we will soon learn is Dolores Ramirez from the X-Desk, and we've seen her pop up in various info pages up to this point. Now, Storm and Dolores strike up a conversation, and we find out that the X-Desk was responsible for putting out some intel, which wound up helping the X-Men and saving a lot of human lives in the process. Now, the X-Desk, they suggested that Ominous Verandy was going to uh, be putting out tainted miracle meds, which gave the X-Men enough time to swap him out with good ones, thus saving many lives as well as the X-Men's reputation. Dolores is pleased that everything worked out okay, and uh, as she wheels herself out to the platform, she thanks Storm and the X-Men for those miracle meds, which saved her mother's life. Storm's happy that everything worked out. From here, we hop back to the hatchery. And the five are back to trying to resurrect Kitty, but that same problem still remains. The gold ball husk that Kitty's in just won't break out. Emma suggests that maybe Kitty's just out of phase. Wait a minute, did, did, did somebody say phase? Dun dun dun, Emma suddenly has an idea which you'd think Professor X would have considered far earlier during this exercise. I mean, Kitty's whole deal here is that she phases through things. So, like, no duh. Emma suggests that Kitty wouldn't break out of the gold ball, she would just phase through. And so she reaches out, and Kitty finally emerges from the gold ball. The five are overjoyed that this finally worked, and note that they'll know better should there be a next time for Kitty. Egg comments that it took, some, took him like a hundred tries, but it was all worth it. Tempest corrects him and says it was actually only 18 tries. And at that, Nightcrawler's ears perk up. I'm not sure why. I don't know if 18 tries will wind up coming back around. I don't know if there's anything significant about that number for Nightcrawler. 
Maybe we'll find out. Kitty is then reunited with Lockheed, and she and Emma share a little mind chat about what went down in Kitty's final moments. It's worth noting that Kitty's final memory is from before that fatal mission. Now, Kitty knows that Shaw struck first and that they will be taking care of business. It's also worth noting that Kitty's knuckle tattoos are gone, which makes me far happier than I thought it would, which is odd. Though, if the upcoming covers are anything to go by, they won't be gone for long. We'll wrap up with one final info page, and this one's from the X-Desk, and has Dolores writing about her surprise meeting with Storm, and it would appear that this gal might be smitten. That's the end of the issue. Next time, we'll be talking about X-Force number 11. But first, how about we talk about what we learned here? I feel like we're back in form with this issue. (laughs) This was a really, really great one. Um, I almost wish we came back to this issue instead of that Phantom X one. (laughs) This would have been a much much sweeter surprise. or not, Not so much a surprise, since this is a great series overall, but... I think it would have been a smoother transition from our little hiatus to come back with such a strong issue. That all said, though, the gimmick that this issue hinges on may be a little bit obvious. Um, You know, we talk about suspension of disbelief. That's something that a lot of us talk about, but, I mean, look at what we're reading here. Look at the stuff we're trying to analyze. This is fantastical stuff with superheroes and mutants here. With that said... It's hard for me to suspend my disbelief that Professor X presided over 17 attempts to resurrect Kitty and not one time thought about the fact that her entire mutant ability is phasing through solid boundaries. I mean, even as just like a floated-out theory on a lark, I'd see Xavier giving it a shot before, you know, before just denouncing the whole thing and saying, hey, you know, we'll, we'll try her again later on. I mean, it really, it took Emma to step in and intervene. And the fact that it actually took her saying the word phase in order to jog her memory to the fact that, oh, duh, Kitty, the girl we've been laser-focused on for the past however long, phases through things. It's a little weird. I mean, it's hard to suspend our disbelief that, I mean, that Professor X would just be that out to lunch and not consider Kitty's uh, mutant ability. But... At the end of the day, it got us where we needed to be, and it gave us a really good story, so I guess we'll have to allow it. Uh, we also learn a bit more about the X-Desk here, and uh, i got to admit, it was a bit of a zig where I was expecting a zag. Now, admittedly, I do read the info pages. However, it's often a case of, like, in one ear and out the other, or maybe it's in one eye and out the other. Whatever it is. I don't feel like I retain quite as much from the text pages as I do the actual comics content. Uh, And so, I just assumed that the X-Desk was, well, maybe not like an anti-mutant sort of a, you know, seat or a columnist or an informant, but almost certainly not a pro-mutant one. I, I always assumed they were either benign to mutants or... You know, just filling in information uh, for a group that may not be so kind toward mutants. That said, I was very surprised here that Dolores is very much pro-mutant and pro-Krakoa. I feel like this was a very nice scene, and I, I, you know, I'm kind of looking forward to more dealings between the Marauders and the X-Desk moving forward, if there are going to be any. Uh, The art here was good, uh, but... You know, it's almost unfair to put Caselli on interiors when we've got such a stunning cover by Dodderman. 
I mean, it's not a fair comparison, and Caselli is a fine artist, but I gotta admit, I became a little bit deflated when I saw that it wasn't Dottoman on the interiors. Uh, It seemed a little disappointing. Um, Overall, though, I mean, same as it ever was with Marauders. It's a great issue, but, I mean, there's not a whole lot to talk about other than saying, I really, really enjoyed this. Um, And this is one I would wholeheartedly recommend, and... uh, I gotta say, if this is the path to X of Tens, I think we're uh, I think we're going we're going off on the right foot here, and I'm looking forward to more. And uh, next episode, the uh, X Force number eleven also has that path to X of Tens tab on it, so we're keeping with it at least for another day. But that's all I've got to say about this issue of Marauders. Really, really fun stuff. Um, didn't answer all my questions, but uh, I, I was kind of expecting us to find out a little bit more about why Kitty can't pass through the Krakoan gateways with her resurrection. But uh, I suppose that's being kept for another time. So we'll, you know, we'll keep our eyes and ears open for that as we move forward. But uh, great issue overall. Great issue overall. But uh With that said, let's head into the mailbag here. We got a couple of letters. First from Damien, and he's talking about Empire, colon, X-Men number two. He says, Let's go in hard. Who thinks swearing is funny nowadays? Surely that that ship sailed decades ago. I try not to curse in my feedback because I know you don't like it, but the try-hard dialogue is almost making me swear. And it's funny. I mean, I'm not not really anti uh, cursing or anything There have actually been a handful of times Where I've wanted to curse on air And uh, off mic I do have a fairly filthy mouth I, uh, I'm i from New York It's kind of <laughs> just something we do So it kind of comes naturally to me um, So it's not something I it's, it's it's something that I have to actually like, Try not to do more often than not I've wanted to curse a lot of late I've struggled um, With saying that these books These Dawn of X books are full of Space stuff instead of you know <laughs> cursing um and there have even been a bunch of uh, blog posts from uh, years past where i was discussing books that i thought were absolute garbage uh things like things like heroes in crisis and superman grounded come to mind immediately and those pieces came very very close to being nothing more than just like curse-laden rants uh i i always try to like regulate or govern what i say or type when uh when I'm especially, you know, angry and uh, dismissive of a story or an arc or an issue, I always try to pretend that my grandparents are reading or listening to what I put out, which helps to keep me a little bit cleaner than uh, I may otherwise be. That said, if you've heard any of my guest appearances elsewhere on other people's channels, I'm a bit looser with my language. And, um, I mean, there are even episodes on this channel where I've gone off. Uh, the young animal gatherums are... <laughs> those are a little dicey at uh, at times. Now, I, I don't know why Hickman and company have decided that, like, cursing equals comedy. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. It's like... It's like I remember as I was graduating high school and the uh, the yearbook people would be coming around and they would try, be try to take a they would try to take like the candid shots, right? They would take the candids of everybody and everybody thought it was the coolest thing in the world to like give them the middle finger. And uh, and, and I'm sure I thought it was hilarious as well when I was 16, 17 years old, but you think about that now, and if like if you ever like just see like a group of like sixteen or seventeen year olds 
giving middle fingers to the camera. It's, I'm sitting here at 41 years old, just like, wow, <laughs> how pathetic, you know? Uh, and maybe these are being written for a different audience. I really don't know. And, and I'm, uh, you know, even going further, the reason I first signed up for a YouTube account back in probably, boy, like mid 2006 or something. I think I only did it to subscribe to the uh, the angry video game nerd. And his old gimmick was the fact that he was cursing at all video games. And it was novel, right? I mean, for the time. But here we are in 2020 or whatever year you're listening to this in. And it's just like, I, I don't know that. The, I think, like you said, the ship sailed. It's not funny anymore. I think we've all kind of, we've been there. And it's kind of just, a, we got the t-shirt and it's time to move on. And I don't get why, I really don't get why Hickman and and the crew are just so, so, they think it's the coolest thing in the world. I don't get it. Damien continues. It turns out my comment on the last episode was based on a misunderstanding. I thought the Katadi were in Wakanda when they were actually in Genosha all along. It does make me wonder why they were talking about Vibranium last issue, though. And yes, this was a very awkwardly written bit. Uh, like I said last episode, I thought the same thing. I thought we were in Wakanda. And uh, I even, like, lambasted it for being, like, cheap heat. You know, it's like, hey, we said Wakanda, give me my bonus. You know, it's... And that wasn't the case. It's It was just very awkwardly done. Damien continues. I really hate horticulture. <laughs> me too. Uh, they're just a number of dated jokes rolled together, and I automatically flinch every time I see them. As you know, I read a lot of Marvel on Unlimited, and they hype new releases to you. I remember seeing this series being promoted and clicking through to the description, seeing horticulture, and saying no. (laughs) Their their presence made me reject a free comic. Of course, I knew in the back of my head that I'd eventually have to read it to keep up with X-Lapsed. And it's funny, um, I honestly almost gave up right there when I saw them on the last page of Empire Number 1. I even thought about putting out like a like a fake half episode where all I would do is get through the synopsis, get to horticulture and just say nope <laughs> and then end it right there in like mid-sentence, no outro music, just dead stop. And we would just never mention the Empire book again after that. We would just go on to whatever was going to come next. And uh, th- there've been a number on- only a couple of times actually in my comics commentary career where I felt that way. Um, what was it? The Law was a awful, awful um, DC miniseries featuring the Charlton hero characters. So like uh, the Blue Beetle and Captain Adam and uh, Judo Master Peacemaker came out probably right around the turn of the century. And it was a six-issue miniseries. And I think I made it three issues in, re- re- uh, re- reviewing it on the site. And I just stopped. I couldn't do it anymore. That was the, I think that was the one and only thing I actually noped out of because it was just so bad. Um, of late, I mean, there have been a couple of times lately where I've wanted to stop, and they all seem to have to do with something Hickman has written. Um, the Brood Invasion from not too long ago with, the, you know, with Brew eating the king egg. That was almost it for the show. Um... This miniseries, Empire X-Men, was another bullet that we narrowly dodged. Um, I'm almost thinking that the head of X-Crown should just be passed over to Jerry Duggan at this point. Give it to him. 
This guy, Jerry Duggan, is is a smart writer who's also funny. Let him do it. If we're gonna do comedy in these books, give it to Jerry Duggan. And and I'm thinking about your looking on Marvel Unlimited, and I can't I can't wrap my head around the fact that they hyped a book with horticulture. I mean, if horticulture are your selling point, it might be time to change careers. Um, if this were a TV show. Horticulture would be like an instant channel change situation for me. It's like, nope, not going to do that. Damien continues, The scene with Black Tom just made me think of my allergies. I imagine the Morlock healer is struggling to get around to the mortally wounded members of X-Force because he's got a mile-long queue of hay fever sufferers. Yeah, there's so much pollen, right? It's funny. Um, I grew up in New York, spent you know 18 years out there. Never had allergies a day in my life. Um, my mother and my sister, however, were just ravaged with allergies. Uh, I remember my sister got the allergy test where they do, they do like the 20 little pinpricks on your forearm, you know? And like all of them blew up to, to say that she was allergic to it. We come out here to Arizona. My mother and my sister are fine. I get allergies. And it's ridiculous. I, I can't... I've got to use, like, nasal sprays and pills, and the spring is just an awful time. And, I mean, we're going into the spring pretty soon, especially out here in Arizona. The spring comes very early, and I am not looking forward to it at all. So, yeah, seeing Black Tom manifest in pollen and dust and mold. Yeah, I, I totally see why uh, your, your mind would go to allergies, and now mine will as well. Uh, Damien wraps up with, The art was nice again, and it was better than issue one, so maybe by issue four we'll have a series that doesn't make me angry. And yeah, the art here was definitely very nice. And I do agree that it was better than the first issue as well. Um, I think... I mean, I'm thinking about this series, as I've had a few people write in about it, and as I reflect on it, I, I'm still angry at it. I mean, it's solidly in our rear view at this point, but it was just so half-assed and pointless when... I mean, it didn't need to be, did it? I, I, I think, I think Damien himself said in his response to the first issue of Empire, he said everyone involved in this issue could do better, and he's 100% right on with that. There's, there's absolutely no reason for Empire colon X Men to be this bad, this lazy, and this half-assed as it turned out being. No reason for it at all. They, I mean, it could have, they could have done anything else. And uh, it would have been it would have been better than this. So I want to thank you so much for sending in your thoughts and keeping up with Empire X Men. I know it's not an easy read or listen. So thank you so so much. Uh, we're going to go on to a piece from Evan Bevins, who's talking about the Crucible issue, X Men number seven, and that's that's conversations I always want to have because that was probably probably the most thought provocative issue. That we've covered so far on the show is about one of the hardest episodes I've ever had to put together, and uh, the the feedback on it has been wonderful. Now, Evan says, here's my two cents on X-Men number seven. I thought it was excellently written and crafted, but boy, did I disagree with a lot of what went on in the story itself. But that's one thing I've appreciated about Hox Pox Docs. You don't have to 100% agree with what's going on to follow and enjoy the story. Some of the stuff Professor X and company are doing makes sense, even if it rubs me the wrong way. Other things seem way over the line, but that doesn't seem to be a case of bad writing. Is it because the mutants have been pushed so far and believe that only extreme measures can protect and preserve them? Are some being manipulated? 
and I mean, some sort of manipulation seems to be the show's pet theory. I, I think we refer to it as Theory A. Uh, there's almost gotta, almost, almost gotta be something going on behind the scenes here because, I mean, there's there's out of character and there's like whatever this is because this is like it's almost like a willful ignorance where. There almost has to be a, a coercion or a manipulation behind the way that they're acting here. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we, we work our way through uh, Evan's thoughts here. Evan continues, I think there was a line of dialogue where Nightcrawler said all he had to do to accept the gifts of Krakoa was give up on what he believed in. It seems like he and Rain have kind of turned their backs on their faith. And while that's understandable from a certain perspective, it's disappointing to me as a Christian to see the ex-characters most associated with that faith appear to cast it aside relatively easily. We may get a flashback or a deeper dive to look into their struggle. We may find out they were nudged psychically. We may, find, we may have them revert back to their previous beliefs years down the line when a new head of X takes over. And I think, you know, this era will probably be reflected upon as sort of a like a pit stop where a lot of the changes that occurred here will be swept aside or contradicted by whoever comes next. Which I guess, you know, mileage varies. That might be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, that might just be another way that will ultimately wind up comparing the Hickman era to the Morrison era in years to come. Wherein we have a lot of high concept ideas that might just be a little too big for a family of superhero books like the X-Men. Ideas that won't be able to be built upon by whoever's next, because, I mean, I mean, where do we even go from here, right? I feel like a lot of things will be walked back, and there'll be explanations for any sort of hiccups that might, might happen along the way. And I feel like, and I'm completely guessing here, but I feel like had Morrison's split with Marvel not been so acrimonious... His new X-Men era wouldn't have gotten would have gotten like a much more satisfying send-off, right? Instead, what we got was just Joe, Joe Quesada throwing a temper tantrum and swinging a sledgehammer at anything that appeared to have Grant's fingerprints on it while handing his book over to Chuck Austin, who... Ugh. Hopefully, when Hickman's had his final say on the X-Books, he you know won't be <laughs> fighting with Marvel, and he'll be given the opportunity to facilitate whatever is going to come next. Whether that winds up being a more traditional X-Men family of books, or whatever the next evolution might be, whatever, you know? I, I just hope that, that Hickman's able to, you know, hand off the baton in a facilitatory sort of way, where it's not just going to be like a line in the sand and, hey, everything you just read for four years... Done, you know that's not the that's not our direction anymore, and we're gonna make sure you know it. I hope that it's a little bit smoother than that, or whatever the ultimate revelation is makes sense as well. Evan continues, House of X wasn't even Nightcrawler's first resurrection. Remember him battling his dad on an afterlife pirate ship in Amazing X Men? So he's been to heaven and hell. Although, like any concept and occurrence in comics, that can be written away. And yeah. The fact that Nightcrawler and a number of X-Men have been to the afterlife, heaven and hell, it makes it difficult to pay much mind to the skepticism that we're seeing in the Marvel Universe. I always struggle with that in comics. People who have actually met God or Satan claiming to be, like, atheist or agnostic, I, I can't wrap my head around that. I mean, I understand it in real life, 
but not so much in the fantastical Marvel universe, where, like you said, I mean, they were they were on a on a heavenly pirate ship in the opening arc of Amazing X Men. I guess whatever afterlife, if any, Nightcrawler or Rain experienced prior to their Gold Ball resurrection, maybe that informs their spiritual worldview from this point on. Which I suppose is going to have to remain to be seen, since we don't know what, if anything, they saw or experienced while in that egg. So it's, it's very, very weird. Evan continues... The Crucible concept makes some in-story sense, but I'm reminded of Sue Richards' X plus 4 remark about how the X-Men seem to value Franklin's life more than Val's because he's a mutant. Maybe it was just Apocalypse taunting Arrow, but I got the vibe that at least some of the occupants of Krakoa think a depowered mutant is less than other mutants. The Scarlet Witch is a pretender to be scorned, but what what she did determines a mutant's value. People hate and fear mutants and are wrong to do so, but a depowered mutant's altered genetic structure, altered through no fault of their own, makes them a second-class citizen. And I gotta say, something that this issue does so well is that it invites theories and discussion. I mean, it demands them almost, right? I'm always going to enjoy discussing this issue and the Crucible concept because it's just so damn thought-provoking. No matter if we agree or disagree with the Crucible being a thing that happens, there's just so much to ponder here. Um, I feel like with every comment or email I get about this issue in particular, I feel like I learn more just via different points of view and the way that people um, receive this issue. So if anybody out there listening has thoughts on X-Men number 7 and you haven't shared them yet, please, please do so, because I'm very, very interested. Um, I think it was very interesting to see that the mutants of Krakoa are acting... They're acting intolerant of someone who's different, right? And I'm not sure if I've commented on this before. I, I mean, sure, we've we've had evil mutants or frustrated, angsty mutants who might refer to humans as flat scans or whatever. But this is different. Um, this is, as Evan put it, you know, the mutants, good, bad, and ugly, they're viewing someone as being lesser than. And, I mean, we've got Professor Xavier presiding over this ceremony. It's very, very strange. And there's so much to consider and a lot of, a lot of meat on the bone here. I, I, I just, I love talking about this issue. There's so much to get into. Uh, Evan continues... Some of that may be may have been Apocalypse's theatrics. I get the rationale for not just greenlighting a mutant killing herself to get her powers back, but we're so concerned with preserving every mutant that will bring back almost anybody, as long as they're not inconvenient clairvoyants. But we won't restore the abilities of mutants who've lost their power through no fault of their own. Seems to me that repowering the living would be a pretty logical thing to do. And yes, Apocalypse kind of goading... Arrow on was interesting, as he was basically forcing her to beg for death. There's certainly theater to that, but also the idea that it it sort of assuages Apocalypse and the rest of the X-Men who are just sitting there watching of any responsibility for what happens next. I mean, Arrow is basically saying that she wants to die. She's asking for it. She's begging for it. Now, one thing I'm not sure of... And this might just be me being a bit dense or just out of the loop on recent pre-Hoxpox X-Books. But can depowered mutants be repowered? Is there a way to do that? Or do some mutants just wind up getting their powers back, like, out of nowhere? 
Like, how did Jubilee go from being a vampire to back to being like a fireworks factory? I don't think she died. I mean, can vampires even die in the first place? I don't know. So I don't really know the protocol for repowering the living. I don't know if that's something that... I don't know if that's a science that they've mastered yet. Or if it's even a science that exists. So I don't know if this is the only way to do it, to bring them back whole. I really don't know. It's interesting. Uh, it's interesting to think about. Evan continues. The thing about souls is something I've been wondering about, and I'm glad it was brought up. It all sound. If this all sounds like I'm bashing Hickman and company, I'm not. I think it was well done and raised a lot of questions we've been thinking about. I don't think Hickman is advocating blind acceptance of the new status quo, and questions of whether Xavier has gone too far and whether the ends justify these means are a major part of the story. And, you know, one of the things that Nightcrawler says during this issue that stuck with me is that he's already seeing cracks in the foundation of Krakoa. We know he's on the Quiet Council. We know that he he's one of the most, you know, probably one of the most trusted and beloved characters on this island. So I'm sure he knows things. I'm sure people talk to him. People feel comfortable with him. And he comments that he's already seeing cracks, right? I want to say he's the first person to show a measure of skepticism toward the new status quo. So I agree. I don't think Hickman wants us or the characters to blindly accept the new way. There are going to be people who do. There are going to be people who don't. It might be a commentary on faith itself, wherein sometimes we see what we want to because it's comfortable and easy, right? It's easy for a mutant on Krakoa to look at the resurrection protocols and to just stop worrying about death. You don't have to, if you don't want to, you don't have to stop and think about your soul, your mortal soul, your memories, or whatever pain you may experience in death. It's all about the ends. It's all about that quick and easy fix. Basically to say, if you have faith in the Five, in Krakoa, and in Xavier, you'll be saved. Don't worry about anything else. It's easy for... uh, It's the path of least resistance, you know? It's everything you could ever want. All you have to do is believe in it. So it might be a commentary on faith. I'm not sure, though. I think we're kind of walking a line where, uh, where faith... I don't think faith is being criticized, but I think it's being studied. I think it's being... I don't think it's being advocated or slighted. I think it's just something that's... Something that's put in our laps and... Uh, What we do with it, we do with it. Now, this whole thing overall might be a little too heady for an X-Men comic, um, and perhaps too uncomfortable and commentary-laden for anyone who is struggling with concepts of faith in the real world. But, as I've been saying, and as I'll continue to say, it's definitely an idea that gives us plenty to chew on. There's a lot of meat on that bone. Now, Evan wraps up with a comment on Cyclops and Wolverine. That scene, he says... uh, as far as Cyclops and Wolverine, I take it as Wolverine making the kind of comment you'd expect him to make, and Cyclops, instead of getting mad, coming back with a joke to replace the image in Wolverine's mind with a, shall we say, less pleasant one. They seem to have set a lot of their rivalry aside, recognizing that they have bigger fish ever, than ever to fry. Although at this point, I'm still not sure exa- what exactly the nature of Cyclops and Jean's relationship is. Are they married? Dating? Is there some kind of Krakoa free love thing going on? The way Nightcrawler asked Scott if he'd asked Emma also made me wonder. And yes, this is of course the big 
Tempest in a tea bag or whatever scene. Um, uh, and sadly, the scene that sort of stole the spotlight from the Crucible in the comics media, because of course it did. The bleeding cool types only seem to care about outrage, and so this short series of panels got all the focus. So far, everyone who's written into the show to discuss this scene has been similarly minded. Uh, it's a joke, but if you wanted to read more into it, you certainly could. No harm, no foul. I think that's what it was meant to be myself. And so far, that's, that's been the overwhelming response. Now, as far as relationship statuses here, uh, they're, they're still kind of up in the air, even to, even to this point. I think if I'm, gonna, if I'm the pick from Evan's choices there, it's probably closest to the uh, Krakoa free love idea. Um, we've seen Scott and Jean on vacation. We've seen Logan and Jean making out in the hot tub. I think us being questioning is exactly what's expected of us. There is no actual answer. And I'm not sure we'll even ever get one during this era. I definitely could be wrong. And for all I know, post X of Tens, there'll be a huge quadruple wedding or something. But I'm really not holding my breath waiting for answers here. It's, uh, I think, I think this is going to be left purposely nebulous moving forward. But, uh, uh, Evan, I want to thank you so much for such a thoughtful, uh, email about X-Men number seven here. And again, Inviting anyone who's read X-Men number 7 who hasn't written in, or even if you have and you have other thoughts, please share them with, uh, share them with the class, because this is probably the most interesting issue so far to discuss, so any ideas are great. And we're going to wrap up with a message from Al Sedano, who's talking about Excalibur number 2 way, way back. He says, sorry it's been so long, it's been a busy month, but anyway, it's time for Excalibur number 2. Yay? And uh, never apologize I know, especially, you know, Christmas month It's going to be busy, so no, no worries Uh, Al continues First of all, when are they going to give us A Shogo Joy Boy crossover That we need? This just has to happen at some point in the series Plus, it would be the perfect crossover Between this show and From Claremont to Claremont Now, Joy Boy Is a member of TechNet And it's the, uh, if you're familiar with TechNet But not familiar with the names of the TechNet members, this is that baby, that kind of fat baby who floats around in a ball, or in a, like a half bed, kind of looks like a turtle shell, but floats around in it and uh, has mind control powers, or has euphoric powers, or something like that. But uh, me and uh, Jesse Starcher have been having a good time with uh, Joy Boy over in the Alan Davis Excalibur issues, and from Claremont to Claremont. So I think... I think Al is 100% dead on here. We need a Shogo and Joy Boy crossover. I think that could be the new boom era. And uh, all the uh, comic speculation apps will go wild. And uh, everybody will be getting their 9.7 copies uh, slabbed. Because that'll be a big issue. Big, big issue. (laughs) Al continues. In all seriousness, this issue wasn't badly done, but it was confusing. I really wasn't sure what was happening. I'm hoping future issues make more sense. And yes, we're dealing with, uh, you know, Betsy and the Druids, and Betsy seeing things that nobody else can see at this point, and Rogue is, you know, sleeping. And yeah, this was a, a tough start for the Excalibur series, which really doesn't... You know, we talk a lot about writing for the trade, and there are a lot of different ways we can take something like that. Writing for the trade could be a pacing thing, or it could be like a revelatory thing, you know, where revelations only 
are only satisfying if you read everything in one clump. With these early issues of Excalibur, we don't really get explanations until the very end. So it's hard to read these as individual chapters with any sort of space in between, because they're not satisfying. And as Al said, they are confusing. You, you just don't know what's happening. So uh, no worries, though. Future issues will make more sense. They may not be as fun to read, because we are still with you know Morgan Le Fay in, in Otherworld, but they'll make sense. Everything will sort of kind of come around, and then it will just go completely insane when that weirdo Jamie Braddock gets involved. But if you're still listening at this point, you, you know that. You know that already. But uh, Al wraps up with, also, just to vote on it, I loved the Kulan Goth story. Ugh. Yeah, the Kulan Goth story <laughs> from, boy, it was like the late 100s, so like 188, 190-ish of Uncanny X-Men. Uh, Kulan Gath is a uh, Conan villain, I believe, or a Conan bad guy, uh, who showed up, I think the first time I saw him was in Avengers Volume 3, still the Busick Perez era. People made a huge deal about Kulan Gath coming back, and uh, that's when I learned about the two or three issue run where uh, he was in the X-Men books too, and I... I yeah, I'm never going to be about that stuff. Uh, I, I feel kind of left out with all the Conan stuff going on at Marvel now that I have absolutely no interest in it. I feel like I'm out of the loop. Uh, just like a few years ago when all the Star Wars stuff came back and everybody was excited and I could care less. I felt left out. I felt bad because I felt like I was missing out on history. But I also didn't want to just jump in on something I didn't care about because... I do enough of that as it is. I don't need to do that anymore. But uh, thank you so much for uh, for keeping up and uh, for checking in, Al. I very much appreciate it. I can't wait until you get to X-Men number 7 so you can let us know your thoughts on that as well. But uh, that's all the email for today. If anybody would like to write in, uh, please feel free to do so. You can find me at Ace Comics on Twitter or weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, you can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can talk to us about Whatever you want, over on Facebook, our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to a whole bunch of stuff with my voice on it, if you want, over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That'll do it for today. Uh, next time, uh, we're going to do some X-Forcing, and uh, still on the path to X of 10. So, looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. Uh, one giant thank you to everyone for sharing their time with me today. Uh, it's always very appreciated and uh, very humbling. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.